All right, we'll grab your Bibles and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's always an interesting thing to come into a church um, and, and kind of preach one sermon. Uh, we, we go through books of the Bible at our church, and so it's, you know, we're always in series. I kind of know what's coming up next. And when you go to preach somewhere else, it's kind of like, oh, what, what am I going to speak on? And so I spent a lot of time praying and thinking about it, and I was drawn to a number of texts. Interestingly, all of them about uh, comfort for the Christian. Um, and so I'm not sure if that's because that's what you need to hear or that's what I need to hear. Guessing it's a little bit of both. Um, so we're going to be in the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me um, read it in totality before we begin. This is what it says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of God. All right, well, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians begins uh, with the word, Therefore. Uh, and Paul is using this word to continue his conversation with the Corinthian church um, that he had, has been having up to that point, um, specifically on how they can know that his ministry comes from God. What he's been doing is defending his calling. Now, the reason why this is such a difficult task for him um, is because the Corinthians are using the wrong measurements of success. They are driven by earthly ideas of what it means to be accomplished. Things like giftedness and numbers and celebrity great thing we don't have that problem in the church today. And so Paul spends a lot of his time trying to move their understanding of calling. And so he doesn't just justify himself by, by their standards. He wants to change the way that they think about what it means to be of God. Now, the truth is Paul could have defended himself on their terms, um, and he could cater to their demands. We see him doing this in other places. In Philippians, for example, he kind of says, this is who I am. I have a pretty good resume, and he lays it out for them. But he doesn't do that here because he wants to make sure that he doesn't feed their delusion. He could meet them where they are, but this would not produce the transformation that God seeks. And so in chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that this is what he is concerned with. And he encourages them to use the end goal of glory to fuel this step-by-step -step process of change or sanctification. This is what he says in verse 18 of chapter 3. He said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so the promise is that Christians will be glorified and able to stand in the presence of Jesus' perfection for eternity. Knowing that that is the future that we are going towards should have a profound effect on how we think of success in this life. Because if we are going to have everything that we need beyond what this world could ever provide, then fighting for the table scraps of this earth is a foolish endeavor. And so if what Paul has said in the first three chapters is true, it demands a response. And that's what the therefore is there to do. And so we're going to look today at what the truth of future glory means for how we conduct ourselves now. Paul is going to describe for us a way of living that is far less fragile and far more life-giving than all the alternatives that we have settled for. And so we've read the whole passage. I'm going to, to kind of walk through it as we go. This is what it says in verse 1. It says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So the first thing Paul does is he connects all that he has said, all of this, these ideas of future glory, to the idea of not losing heart. Now, that's important because the way that we define success also is reflected in the way that we define failure. That is to say, if we have a standard that we believe justifies us and makes us enough and somehow makes us good, then we will struggle, believing that God doesn't love us when we don't meet it. Now, this can look a lot of different ways, and it does depending on sort of what church stream you're in. Um, Some measure faith by theological understanding. If that is the case, then you'll feel like a failure when someone comes up with a question about God that you don't have an answer for, or when you come up with a question about God that you don't have an answer for. Some measure faith by how they feel about God, right? And you will assume that you're a failure then when your feelings um, towards God are anger or, or doubt. Some measure faith by the things that you do, often referred to as bearing fruit, And that's how you measure it. You will feel like a failure when your output wanes. Say, some measure faith by influence. How we're changing the culture. And you'll feel like a failure when the cultural winds shift and society seems to be against God. Some measure faith by the power of the spirit. That's how you do it. You will measure failure or you will feel failure when you don't manifest giftedness as others do, or as you think that you are supposed to. Some measure faith by personal growth. If you do, you will feel like a failure when prayer and Bible reading and being in a relationship with other Christians feels dry and difficult when you were in one of those times of difficulty. Now, we could go on and on with this. I could come up with a whole bunch more. This could be the entire sermon. How your kids turn out, how many people you evangelize, the state of your marriage, right? These are all different things that people kind of put as the the idea of what it means to be a Christian. Now, none of those things that I mentioned are bad. As a matter of fact, all of them are part of how we see God working in and through us. They're part of how we experience faith. But when we use them as the measure of success, they lead us to pride when we're doing well and despair when we're not. And what this does is it allows Christians to be greatly influenced by the culture and the world around us. So here's the the truth. We have a part in the sanctification process, but there's a great many things that we cannot control. 
For an example, your theological understanding is going to be greatly influenced by your reading comprehension. If you are a terrible reader, you will be truncated as to how much you can learn. How we feel about God is going to be controlled by the situations in our life, which oftentimes we aren't fully in control of. Our acts of service can be limited by other responsibilities we have in our life. When you have as many children and chickens as I do, um, there are times when that requires a lot more of my time that I would love to be putting to something else. Now, recognizing this not only affects how we compare ourselves to others, but it reveals that much of what we are using as a gauge is outside of our control. We are often at the mercy of forces outside of ourselves. So what do we do with that? Well, one of the things that we need to do is, is realize that when your faith is going well, when you are just, just hitting the ball out of the park, when you're like, man, everyone should be more like me, um, we should lean into humility, realizing that a lot of these things aren't things that we're producing. It's actually just God's blessing on our lives. We are experiencing profound grace, and we should be massively thankful for that. But I would say this truth is far more powerful when we're failing, which is what Paul is addressing here. There are times when it feels like you are doing all of the work of the Christian life and just not getting any results. Your spiritual growth feels stagnant. Your passion for God is waning. And everything that you try to do to fix it falls flat. Now, people experience this on a very personal level, um, but there are times when, when we're sort of all forced to rethink um, how we thought about the life of faith would turn out. And I say that because I actually think that the church, the larger church, is in one of those moments right now. We're living through a time period when the societal relationship with the church is moving in a negative direction. And the Christian influence on the culture is losing. Many of you have probably been affected by this in your personal relationships. Where Christian ideals have gotten you ostracized by family and friends and maybe even other certain social circles. And I'd say this is happening at our church a lot. I'm having a lot of conversations with people who are trying to navigate their relationships with kind of the the, the changing tide in the culture. So living through a time when things change is confusing, it's difficult, and we need to talk about what the proper response to this all is. And we will in a second. But first I want to just dig into this idea of we do not lose heart. Because what Paul is saying there is, is that when we trust that God will accomplish what he intends, that he will bring all of his people to glory, then the ups and downs of this life no longer control your faithfulness. Our barometer is set on the eternal work of Christ. And all of the earthly struggles that we go through cannot take that away. We do not lose heart is the result of setting the proper standard. That sounds pretty good. But it's not that easy. Right? For many of us, when we're faced with the challenges of life and possibly even deep suffering, losing heart is exactly what we do. We lose heart because, as I have pointed out, we have an incorrect understanding, a wrong standard of how things are supposed to go. Now, some of this comes from our theology, but much more of it just comes from the habits and structures that we have grown up in. So, if you grew up in let's say China, the idea of cultural influence, having a part in how the the, the state runs, would be very different than it is here in America. 
If you grew up as part of a church in Africa, measures of service and sacrifice would be much more community oriented because their um, society is much more community oriented rather than sort of personal accomplishment. If you grew up in the Middle East, the idea of losing a few friends and, and even some family members over identifying with Christ would be expected. That's part of the deal. You accept Christ, they put you out of the family. Now, I say this not to be like, we should be more like all of them. Um, but to simply say the expectations and measurements that we have uh, are formed by the culture that we grew up in. And here in America, uh, there's been quite a bit of overlap between the church and the social understanding of living a good life. It's not exact, but, but it has primarily made you normal in society to be a Christian and to live out Christian principles. To live this way has people going like, oh yeah, that's what Christians in America do. And if most of us, where most of us grew up, I say most of us, not that we're all in the same age group, but let's say the last three decades of the last century, right? You had this huge movement towards sort of a positive view of Christianity. You had the Jesus people movement of the 70s. You had the church growth movement of the 80s. You had the church planting movement of the 90s. And as all of these things were going, there was all of this excitement about sort of culture and and the church overlapping even more. Again, we're going to win this thing. Now, I don't have time to get into a thorough church history lesson here. um, But it's very clear that where that was is not where we are now. What I mean is a lot has happened over the last two decades that has changed the environment that we now live our faith out in. And if we're going to continue to measure ourselves by the standards that we grew up in, we are going to find ourselves scared, angry, and a bit disillusioned. Because here's the truth. Churches are shrinking. The morality of the nation is rejecting the Judeo-Christian values it had previously adopted. And everything from evangelism to raising kids in the faith to being a Christian witness in the workplace is going to be much more difficult. And if we don't intentionally go to Christ for the assurance and encouragement that he offers us, we will lose heart. And I say this as a pastor who has guided people through this over the last 10 to 15 years. I have watched so many people lose heart. I've watched many pastors throw in the towel. I've watched friends walk away from the faith. Losing heart is a natural response to our expectations being broken. Now to combat this, we must root ourselves deeply in the truth of the gospel. We must hold so tightly to the fact that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life and died a sacrificial death so that we would be measured by his work, not our own. We must then regularly behold the glory of God, understanding that it is his righteousness that justifies us. It is his power that will bring his kingdom to bear. And we can do our part within that when we understand that all of that weight is not on our shoulders. An alien righteousness and a hope of glory allows us to view our current struggles differently. And not only does it keep us from falling into despair, it gives us guidance for how we should live our lives in the midst of it. This is where Paul goes. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, one of the things that Paul understands is that when we lose heart, 
It also justifies unrighteous action. That is to say, when we're responding to fear, we're willing to do all sorts of things to make sure the bad guys don't win. And in the same way that our, our standards for what is ideal can change, we're also very malleable along the lines that should not be crossed. Human beings have this amazing ability to talk themselves into the things that they want to believe. Um, and we are willing to move quite a ways and convince ourselves of all sorts of things, especially when our motivation is fear. And so Paul tells us that knowing where we are going allows us to continually act in obedience no matter what is happening around us, even when it doesn't feel like it's working. And so he encourages the church not to fall into disgraceful, underhanded ways, knowing that that is exactly the temptation for those who feel the weight of failure. See, when everything is going well, it's not that hard to advocate for faithfulness. When faithfulness is getting you everything that you want, it's like, faithful, yeah. But when you're struggling, when you aren't getting results, when it feels like everything's falling apart, then it seems like doing whatever is necessary is okay. And so instead of following God's means and allowing him to be in control of the ends, we decide that it is worth it to suspend our integrity for the sake of an immediate win. We see this in politics. We see this in abusive church structures. And I would say I see this in every single relational counseling session that I have ever done. We think we know better than God, and so we're willing to do cruel things to one another in order to get what we want or to get out from underneath whatever difficulty we're facing. And so Paul here is pleading for all those who take on the name of Christ to fight against this impulse, to renounce such action, to refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. The positive way of stating this is, we will strive to be honorable in all situations, even if it doesn't get us the end that we think is best. Because we trust that God is in control and will work all things together for good. He is sovereign, therefore, we will obey. Now, Paul takes this one step further now. He builds on this argument. He says, I will trust in the simple proclamation of the gospel to do the dramatic work of saving people and transforming the people of God. And so he trusts God's way. He also trusts God's word. It does not have to be cleverly argued or adorned to be relevant. No, the gospel proclaimed will fall on the ears of those who have the spirit of God, and this will produce salvation. And so our job as Christians is not to produce results, but to be faithful in declaring the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's atoning work. And so Paul shows us what this looks like. This is what he says in verse 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so if we're proclaiming and people are not responding in faith, I'd say let's go even one step further. If you are raising your children in the faith and they are not responding, we don't need to change tactics or make it happen by cunning. We don't need to change the word of God. And Paul tells us here why. 
He says that if people cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, it's because they are veiled. God does not need to provide more proof. We don't need a better mode of evangelism. Simply, people who are veiled will not see it. And people who are veiled will not accept the glory of God, no matter what we do. To hammer this point home, Paul reminds us of our own salvation. He says, you didn't go find that. You didn't go get that. You didn't believe well enough. This was given to you. And he references the creation of the world. To say the same God who made light shine out of darkness has similarly caused the light of the gospel to shine on previously darkened hearts. It is God who removes the veil to allow the light in. And if this is how he has changed us, this is how we should expect him to change those who we proclaim the gospel to. So knowing who God is and how he works is necessary for us to fulfill our calling. Our actions should flow out of who we know God to be. And so far, Paul has made four connections of this for us. He has said, knowing that he will do the work of bringing us to glory protects us from losing heart. Knowing that he will work through obedience to him keeps us from disgraceful tactics. Knowing that he works through the proclamation of the word gives us confidence to speak. And four, knowing that he makes blind people see keeps us hopeful. Because it's not about the message that we somehow can, like, it's not whether or not we're good speakers. Trust me, I had to grab onto that one early on. It's not about how good we are and how well we do. It's about what God is doing before us. And so in all of this, we see that our calling in this life, the way to be strengthened for ministry, is not developing skills and finding the right system. It's all found through deepening our relationship with God, trusting him more, believing what he has already said. And since the power and comfort and confidence and transformation all come from him, It's our connection to him that is going to allow us to do anything. Now, this reminds us that God is not primarily interested in what we accomplish, but in the process of bringing his people into relationship with himself. I always think it's funny, like, God could do anything he wants. Like, we sit here and we look at these problems, we're like, who could fix this? God could fix all of them like this. He spoke creation into existence. If he wanted that to be done today, it would be done. But he does things the way that he does them so that his people will be brought into a deeper understanding of his grace and glory. They will develop a greater love for him. And so seeing this, we gain a confidence that comes from knowing that we are his. We are part of this plan that he is working forward. So Paul ends this section by explaining to us how this all works out. This is what he says in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So Paul's been talking about the glory that we possess and having the the spirit within us and having God work through us. And now he makes it clear to us that we carry all of this around in fragile vessels. 
Right? So we have glory, but we are still weak. And so when we become Christians, God doesn't simply fix everything and make everything better. No, he calls us to live out this glorious plan of redemption through fail-limited bodies. Now, the body that you have been given, that I have been given, breaks down. And as you age, everything from mind to joints begin to fail. I preached this at our church. This text, I had like all the older people in the church all of a sudden went, Amen! All at once. It happens. Now, similarly, and Ecclesiastes covers this really well, everything in this world follows the same pattern. It's temporary, it breaks down, and it fails. Everything in this world follows that pattern. And what is true of our physical bodies, what is true of the world around us, is also true of our will. We fail. We cannot hold it all together. And so if it's left left to our goodness, if it's left to us, we will break. But all is not lost. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay so that... Now that phrase, so that, is telling us that there is a purpose, that there is a reason for our failure. And so our weakness is not just something to overcome. It's part of the plan by which God will show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Holding this treasure in jars of clay allows us to play the role of glorious failures. We are failures so that God can reveal his grace. We are weak so that God can display his strength. Our inability reveals that he is the one who is doing the work, that he is the one who is saving his people, that he is the one who will bring us to glory. This means that at the moment that we are really struggling with the fact that we aren't who we know we are supposed to be, is the moment that we are actually most accurately representing our humanity. It's in the moment of desperate failure that we best understand what the grace of God truly is. This is why Paul, a little bit later in this letter, says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Because it's those times that your weakness and sin are on display. These are the times that God's mercy and power are able to be seen most clearly by you and by everyone else around you. Now, this doesn't mean that we throw ourselves into sin and failure so that grace may abound. Paul dealt with that in Romans. No, the point is that our best works are filthy rags. That when we try, that when we do our best, then we actually see how pathetic our efforts actually are. And so as Christians, we're called to pursue good. We should attempt to build healthy families and successful careers and strong churches. And it's in striving for this that we will actually find our limitations. It's in the continual pursuit of good that we will discover that we are not. And so the Christian life is this call to something greater with the constant reminder that what we pursue is only possible by God's timing with God's strength. Anything that we succeed in will only be because of his grace. Now, when you see that and press into it, what happens is this fragile life becomes solid. Because no longer are we measured by our weakness. Our identity is in him. 
We don't have to worry because our righteousness is secure. And so we can keep moving forward, whether things are going well or things are going poorly, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, because these are merely the circumstances that we get to live our faith out in. They're not the measure. This is why Paul can go through affliction and persecution without breaking, because these are just part of his life. This is just what he has to deal with. As he goes through these things, he holds on to something that is beyond this life. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. See, in almost every other worldview, suffering is an enemy. Suffering is something to be avoided or overcome or rejected. But the Bible reminds us that death brings life. And while none of us want to go through the pain of this life, none of us want to go through the difficulty, none of us want to face the fact that we're failures, that's not fun. But what the Bible continually tells us is that that is not the ultimate. That is not the most true thing. It's merely part of the fragility of our human condition. Who are we? We are children of our Father in heaven. Promise that he will walk with us every step of the way until he presents us in glory to himself. And so while we wait, while we go through this life until we get there, Paul says, sit in the struggle. Fail well. Respond to your pain in a way that makes it evident to everyone around you that there is something that is working in you that makes it possible to forgive, to stand firm, to look death in the face and not tremble. Because the only thing that has the power to hold you when everything else is falling apart is something we already have. And so we don't gauge our success and our failure on what happens between life and death here. We belong to another place. We have a better Savior. And so we come to church every week to confess our sin, to face death, and to find life. We go through this each and every week to be reminded of the story that we are a part of. And every week when we gather, I'll say this about our church as well as your church, We come to the table and partake in communion, the Lord's Supper. In this, we're remembering that the ultimate act of weakness and pain and sacrifice led to the salvation of God's people. And so when we see what Jesus' death accomplished, and we partake and identify in it, we are committing to measuring our life in a different way. Giving up all of the value judgments that bring glory to us. To live a life that shows that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so we do not lose heart. Because as long as he is in control, all will be well. Receive the Lord's Supper today as a reminder of this comforting truth. Let me pray for us and then we will partake. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done and for the promise of all that you will do. But so often the things that we're going through in this world, the, the, the health issues that we have, the difficulties that we have in relationship, the, the just, 
just the challenges of life feel so much bigger and more real than the promises that you've given us. And God, it's easy for us to start to wonder if you are actually going to do what you have said. And so we pray that you would remind us over and over again, show us what you have done so that we can, we can <clears throat> see the beauty of that. Help us to, to, to partake in the promise that we may know that, that you are exactly who you say you are, that you will do exactly as you said you will do. God, help us to hold on to that as we face all of the different things that we face in this life. Because without you, we have no hope. We thank you that we have you, because it means we have everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.